0: Welcome back to the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast, the podcast that uncover stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And I'm your host, James Lee, and we have a wonderful guest host with us this afternoon. His name is Paul Barnett. He has been with us for the last couple months. He is actually our podcast ministerial intern from Princeton Theological Seminary. Hey, Paul.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: Um, excited that you're finally on the podcast as a host. Yeah.
1: I'm tired of being the podcast angel, you know. I want to be seen now. <laughs> well, heard, I guess. I heard, want to be heard. Heard, right. It's or, my time.
0: Or seen. Uh, we could put pictures online, I guess, too. Today, we have two very special guests, one here in the studio with us and one uh, coming to us via Skype. Uh, we have the Reverend Dr. Steve Bechtold. He is the district superintendent of the Skylands District. And we have uh, Reverend David Worley from Leonia United Methodist Church. Thanks for being on the podcast,
2: guys. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's an honor.
0: All right. What is the Book of Discipline, and how have you used it in your ministry, in your career as a pastor and someone in ministry? Steve, you want to get started first? Sure.
3: For me, the Book of Discipline is the way in which our mission statement is fleshed out. Our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And the Book of Discipline helps us to look at how we are to be and what we are to do mm. it encapsulates both our uh, history and our heritage as a renewal movement and also our organizational and institutional side in one volume
2: awesome thank you and david well i mean steve's explanation as a district superintendent is much more erudite than i'm going to be capable of <laughs> but uh, uh Uh, I could take a stab at it. I guess, um, you know, coming from another angle, maybe is that uh, we're covenantal people as Christians, and so we're incorporated into His family by this this covenant in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. You know, not only do we have a covenant with God, but we have a covenant with all of God's people. And I think the Book of Discipline is a is a book like that. It's our covenant with other United Methodists.
0: Mm. All right, thank you. The book it it begins with a section listing out all the bishops with the year that they were elected. And then there's like a brief history of the church, uh, the church constitution, doctrine, theology, um, all kind of in the beginning of the book. And then there's this really interesting portion called the social principles. And then finally we get into the legislative um, portion, which is by far the largest part of the discipline. Now I, I want to talk about these last two portions of the book of discipline. First, the social principles, the, and then some of the conversations that are going on regarding the, the uh, legislative section of the Book of Discipline. So, if you're speaking to someone who has, who has never heard of the Book of Discipline, what is the social principles and why does it matter?
2: You want to take this first, David? Sure, I could take a stab at it. I think of the social principles as advanced Christian faith. So, how do we as United Methodists live our distinctive United Methodist faith in our everyday lives? So, there's stuff in here about the natural world, Um, stances we take on reproduction, on nuclear weapons. We have a general agreement on some pretty specific stances, and that allows us to align together and uh, make a difference for God's children in the world. Yeah, I find that so interesting, though, that the
0: social principles uh, tap into these very specific topics that are often very political, and at the same time, in our United Methodist Churches, we have people that are across the spectrum politically, and a lot of these social principles may land one side or the other. I mean, where's separation of church and state? Should the United Methodist Church be sharing and dictating how to act how do you? What would you say about that?
3: Well, I see the social principles as a way of helping Christians wrestle with what it means to be a Christian in the world today. And one of the things that is challenging for us as United Methodists is is this is not a United States book. This is a global book. It helps us all to figure out how we can approach the world, not just the life of being a Christian inside the institution, the organization of the church.
2: I I think actually the the book of discipline and the social principles actually help us to maintain this separation of church and state. Uh, Christians may feel... Uh, a need to establish boundaries what you know what is acceptable christian behavior or what should we expect from other christians or from the church you know in a in a pluralistic state a secular state like the United States we really can sometimes all agree on certain moral values we see a lot of new law on bullying and you'll find, Very similar stances in the social principles, but maybe something we're not going to legislate is, uh, for example, we have a stance in the social principles that says not everything that's portrayed in movies is good for us. A certain violence, a certain demeaning of certain people, these things are not compatible with being a Christian person. And so, as United Methodists, we're not saying the United States ought to change the law, or maybe we are, but at least as United Methodists, we're saying, hey, Uh, As United Methodists, we uh, think deeply about what kind of films we watch and uh, what kind of content is in those films.
1: We as uh, United Methodists see everyone on earth as created in the image of God. We also talk about these social principles as a way to live into the world. You mentioned, David, about not using our social principles to legislate, but clearly we see some of these social principles as ways to live into the world. How do we see the social principles in that light as like living into the world as an example
3: or or something like that? Going back to the issue of separation of church and state, I hope that the social principles actually inform people as they are thinking about voting Mm -hmm. and participating in the political process. Are Mm -hmm. they bringing the values that Christ has instilled in Christians into that, not to bring the church there? but bring our values. Jesus made lots of political statements. We kind of miss it sometimes because we live in a different context, but he was always challenging authority, uh, religious authority and civil authority because he brought a different lens through which to look at the world, uh, a lens of, of unconditional love and compassion and
0: caring for people on the margins. Has the social principles ever challenged you in your views in politics and how uh, decisions are made in our country? You know, you say you you wish people would bring their faith when they go to vote, let's say. I think a lot of people feel that they do. Uh, a lot of people may feel like, oh, I this is the party for Jesus, is what I hear a lot of people say from both ends of the political spectrum. And yet, at the same time, we have people like Jeff Sessions, who is a United Methodist, and Elizabeth Warren, who is a United Methodist, right? You have people who identify within our same faith denomination across the whole political spectrum? Um, is it because one is following the social principles better than the other? Or is it that even when we do, we're just all over the place politically? Like,
2: w- what is that? What is, where does it all land, right? So, You know, if you think of beliefs and values as like a spider web, the further you get from the center, the less of the web each of the strands supports. So something's in the center that we all believe, like that gravity is real. It's going to be very hard to pull out. I mean, that would modify lots of other beliefs as we move out from the center to some of these questions explored in the social principles, which I would propose some of them are closer to center, some of them are further out. Then they get implemented differently. So maybe with nuclear arms, you know, we stand for the elimination of, of nuclear arms. But do you do that by setting the example and eliminating all of the nuclear arms in the United States, for example, so that other nations might follow along? Or do you maintain some nuclear arms so that you have a stronger bargaining position with other countries that don't want to uh, eliminate nuclear arms? And I guess I'm not standing for either of those positions, but you can see where, you know, implementation of some of these values (laughs) Uh, could come from different angles.
1: So there are, are multiple sections in, in the social principles itself, uh, and then I think just beyond the social principles as well. There's language that talks about us abiding by or like living into the social principles, but there's language within the social principles that is inconsistent. Um, so you brought up the example of, of denuclearization. We talk about war being um, something that we, we don't do as, as Christians, and we support um, diplomacy, Uh, in ways that build peace, yet there's some wiggle room in things like denuclearization. Like you just said, you know, do we keep nuclear weapons around just in case? Or if we support, you know, no war at all, then maybe we should just get rid of them altogether. So it seems like we talk about abiding by the social principles, but the social principles are, are
3: inconsistent. So what, you know, what do we do with that? I think if you read the social principles over and over again, what they state is that people of faith often come at these issues from different perspectives. It doesn't give an absolute, such as the paragraph on supporting the military. It acknowledges there's some people who would like to eliminate the military altogether, and then others support that, and that together we pray for a time when there would be no need for that. This would not be a debate, but yet this is where we're at in our world. And it's not all black and white. It's not a rule. It is a place of uh, conversation and dialogue. I think the church can be an example to do something a little different, and that is this isn't, is not about winning and losing. It's about how do we come together and find a way in which we can witness for Jesus Christ.
0: And this is something I want to say beforehand, but it's so easy in the churches to really focus on personal holiness, the evangelical gospel to saying, oh, I need Jesus in my heart, and that's all I wanna hear in church. But John Wesley was very big on personal holiness, but he was also very big on social holiness and how the faith is lived out outside of Sunday morning. Can you give us some examples of, or stories in your ministries and your lives, how the social principles or even this call to social holiness in the United Methodist tradition has been lived out?
2: You know, a few years ago, the United Methodist Women came out with a book on immigration and the Bible, I think, but it was about radical hospitality. You know, the church here really impressed me. They work with a, a group called COFIA, and we have a large uh, population of Guatemalans here uh, and other South American laborers who are here, uh, and they are working, and they deserve protections, just like the social principles say. They deserve fair wages, uh, and so these folks were, were teaching them safety They're teaching them how to log the hours they had worked. Uh, They were advocating with employers, uh, providing uh, food uh, one day a week, uh, getting them winter clothes. So it was the kind of radical hospitality that the church ought to be involved in and ought to be extending. I wanted to understand it better. And I said, well, what if we use this United Methodist Women's Resource and search scripture? And uh, we had a preaching series for a season, uh, interview some of these folks who are here, talk with others who are doing ministry with them. Uh, had all of our small groups aligned around this, and we had a great season of exploring how we provide radical hospitality to uh, migrant workers. But it also extended a little further because we found out, you know, half of our church are are immigrants themselves. You know, so it, it was it was really positive. So what I actually
1: what I heard um, throughout this conversation and something that I've been I've been sitting with is that. We as Methodists should use the social principles in a way that supports dialectical thinking, in a way that we wrestle with this idea that people should have health care, but we should also wrestle with this idea that the government shouldn't spend money that it doesn't have. Um, we we support cutting down public indebtedness. So, conversations like that. We support denuclearization, we support peace, but we also support our military because that's the reality of the world we live in. So, I think think that's a good way to think about the social principles. What do you guys say?
0: The flip side of what you just said is, what I hear is if you're really looking for it, you could cherry pick from the book, uh, from the social principles to say, this is why my political stance is correct and yours is wrong. But I think exactly what you said, the dialectical thinking of, we need to be wrestling with these things. But I think also the, the, the wrong approach would be, therefore, we just don't in, aren't involved in politics. I think that's also a wrong approach. But this document helps us really wrestle what does it mean to be a Christian in a political world?
3: It's Jesus' proclamation of the, of the kingdom, the reign of God that is and is still to come. It's, both, it's a both and, not an either or.
0: So, the legislative section is by far the largest section of the Book of Discipline. And the majority of the, the legislative sections people agree on, but it's always those few sections that people, they get very frustrated or talk about. The recent change in our discipline regarding how elders may have less than full-time service or appointment for missional purposes, right? So, this is paragraph uh, 338.2a. For missional purposes, the bishop may, an, may appoint an elder, provisional elder, or an associate member to less than full-time service. This is kind of a new change since the 2016 General Conference. We are entering into appointment season, which is always an anxiety-filled time for pastors. But uh, Steve, without going into too much detail, how is this revision in paragraph 338 playing out right now in the appointment process as you guys are all wrestling with what's next for the church? A major question that we
3: have is whether this constitutes an involuntary change of status and if that can be done without a fair process hearing and it's something that we are not sure that is consistent with the constitution and it will need a case that the judicial council can hear and rule on whether the the bishop and cabinet can institute a less than full-time appointment without the consent of the pastor so it's a it's, amb- it's ambiguous.
0: What I'm hearing is it's not, it's not easy for the cabinet and the bishop to just appoint a full-time elder to less than full-time. It's not as easy as just that. It's like this is much more complicated than that, okay.
3: But one of the things that uh, I think we're going to see moving forward is starting to make room for a variety of forms of ministry for a variety of reasons. We may need to be looking at more flexibility. Also the changing nature of the church. It's not just about um, guaranteeing appointments or giving everybody an assignment. It's also the church is different. And if we're going to be in the world, it may be that an appointment to work in a Fortune 500 company as a kind of an extension ministry chaplain, you know, How that? what does that look like? It's going to look different.
2: My take on this is that there's always been a means for evaluating a, a pastor's fitness for Full-time appointment and putting them in a category of unappointable or transitioning them to a different, you know, to a different vocation. So it's not it's not really new, uh, but I'll give you a little case study. In that one thing I'm very interested in is is planting churches. I was invited to the North Carolina annual conference to do what we call a parachute drop church plant, which is basically take someone who you feel is gifted for starting a new. A church And drop them into an area that looks promising for a new church, sort of start marketing and, uh, you know, finance this in a decreasing way over three years and while a church will be born well you know, that method just isn't really working very well anymore. And, you you know, you can ask across the broad denominational spectrum, and and those types of church plants don't work. But but one thing that keeps us from uh, doing a bivocational church plant, which probably would have worked in the context where I was, is that, you know, the discipline actually didn't allow it. If you were appointed to a charge, uh, you were expected to work for the church and the church only. Um, So, yeah, we do need to begin to explore, like, opportunities to do bivocational or part-time uh, in new ways.
1: So to me, that sounds like we can look at this this change in language about guaranteed appointments and not guaranteeing full-time charges as a, a way to start living into the world differently, as a way to get get the church out into the world more. You know, if people find out in your workplace that you're also a pastor halftime, that's going to change perceptions. And, you know, if, if that's more and more people as time goes forward, then the church is going to look up a whole lot different within the next 15, 20 years. And we
3: already have models and people who are doing that Mm. but i think we need to look at what that that looks like they're called local pastors some of the finest pastors i know are working full-time in various professions and they're serving like quarter time or half time in a local church that's growing and vibrant and bringing people to jesus christ and serving the community and reaching out we also have people who such as i did I went from college to seminary. I'm in my 41st year under appointment. To say to someone who may be in 30 years, you know, I'm invested in a system to all of a sudden say, well, it's not just about an appointment. You're not going to have your health insurance. You're not sure you're going to have a house. It goes back to the social principles where you're
2: living in tension. And that's where we're at. I think a lot of my uh, colleagues are are afraid too. I think sometimes maybe we've, we drink the kool-aid a bit <laughs> um, you know our our process of ordination explores our call to the point where we feel like you know i am called and can only be a united methodist pastor under full time appointment well that's uh, no contingency is too great for god and uh, there you, you may be called to something else and that's
3: the the church is in this in this place what we've been calling liminal space we we aren't what we were. We're not quite sure what we're going to become. And we're trying to live in the midst of that. We're dealing with people and people's lives and the lives of folks in the pews and the congregations and the lives of people in the communities. To keep all of that going, it's not going to be so simple as to come up with the right rule. We're always having conversations, not just within the cabinet. I have this with my clergy colleagues all the time, Mm. where we're looking and saying, this is different. It is different than it used to be. We don't have a single answer, but part of, I think, what our responsibility is a denomination. If we're going to live into honoring people's worth and lifting them up as children of God, how do we also help people to start thinking in new ways? How do we help the church? People in our local churches, they need to wrestle with this also. They, they are part of this covenant that we have together. I have many local churches that say, we can't fill all these positions. Uh, and I said, well, you have the authority to develop an alternate structure that provides for all of this, just needs an okay. It takes a lot of time, and if we could just give a little more guidance to, to help churches walk through that, it might be, it might be beneficial.
0: Right. Uh, Dave, I remember during our phone conversation you read that portion from a very old book of discipline. Do you still have that? Give a quick introduction and what it is. And-
2: yeah, so uh, I just read you a bit of the Episcopal Address in the 1940 one. I'll quote some of this. Uh, the Methodist discipline is a growth rather than a purpose of creation. As new forms of work were developed, new questions were added to the conference list. In such a process of adjustment, the discipline became not a book of definite rules, nor yet a formal code, but rather a record of successive stages of spiritual insight attained by Methodists under the grace of Christ. We have therefore expected that the discipline would be administered not merely as a legal document, but as a revelation of the Holy Spirit working in and through our people we reverently insist that a fundamental aim of Methodism is to make her organization an instrument for the development of spiritual life. For this reason, we wish that this publication might be found in every Methodist home, and the more so because it contains the articles of religion, which are held more or less by all the Reformed churches in the world. Thank you for sharing that. So,
0: as we wrap up, I think the conclusion is this is a fantastic book that should be read by United Methodists and it's also a very complex book one to be wrestled with. Thanks guys for coming on the show. We have one last question for both of you. We ask all our guests. Uh, We are the Uncovered Dish Podcast uh, and we named it because uh, as Methodists we love covered dish dinners. We love food. So the last question is this. If you can have one dish for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, no variations, what would that one dish be? Dave?
2: Well, I think today I would say pilmini, which are a uh, Russian uh, ravioli.
1: Can I ask? Can I ask about that? What like what's in the ravioli? Russian. What is it? What's the dish? That's what's what's the detail?
2: Well, the the shape of the ravioli it's a you know it's a noodle like every noodle, but the shape of it is uh, something like um, like tortellini maybe if you're more familiar with that. But the stuffing is. Uh, a mixture of pork and beef and uh, garlic and onion. Yeah.
1: Is there a sauce that goes on this, or
2: people put different things on mustard or vinegar or butter, mostly.
0: What is it called again? Pielmini. Pielmini. All right. We should go check out some pielmini. All right. And Steve?
3: Probably pasta primavera.
0: Pasta primavera. <laughs> nice.
1: How do you, when you say pasta primavera? What do you envision? What do
3: you see? Yeah. What do you taste? I taste um, a whole variety of um, sautéed fresh vegetables with a light garlic sauce. And right now, I taste whole wheat pasta.
0: A whole wheat pasta? (laughs)
1: No
3: bleached white
1: pasta? No, none of that. Okay.
0: No. Unhealthy stuff, Nope. That's
3: actually one of the diet and lifestyle changes I've made that has been uh, very positive.
0: All right. Awesome. Steve, Dave, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate you giving uh, your time. If people wanted to reach out to you, where can they find information about your ministry and uh, your contact information? Dave, how can...
2: Uh, Leonia.church.
0: Leonia.church. All right. GNJUMC.org. Look under Skylands District. There we go. Steve, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, We wish you the best in your respective ministries. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. So Paul, what'd you think of uh, that conversation over the book of discipline?
1: I feel like this conversation was actually really encouraging for me as a, as a United Methodist and as an aspiring deacon. When I sit through, you know, a United Methodist polity class and and we hear about the Book of Discipline and and what it means. The, the thing that I walked away from, with from that class was that it's a book that is internally inconsistent uh, and it's a book that is applied inconsistently around the world as, as Steve said, you can have up to a 1,000 people in a room writing this book for, I think he said, 11 days.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So um, that's referring to the general conference every four right. years. Delegates throughout the whole denomination gets together. Right.
1: And that means and that means people from around the world, too, right. uh, who right. come from very specific contexts. Right. I think about this book, and, and specifically, I guess, about the social principles, and say, yeah, we need to be a denomination that lives... Intention and understands how to live in tension about different issues. In some situations, we can come down one way. In other situations, we can come down another way, uh, politically and socially, and understanding the play of, as Steve said, the kingdom that is and the kingdom that is yet to be. Mm-hmm. And I think we even got into that when we, when we talked about this specific uh, issue of, of um, clergy not, being able to be full-time necessarily uh, of of these appointments that aren't guaranteed full-time is that we are learning as a denomination how to be different in the world. The church is changing. How do we need to change the church? And people might look at, at that changed legislation as being completely negative, but... As we learned in the social principles conversation, nothing's ever completely negative if you continue to peel back the layers. Mm -hmm. I mean, some things have to necessarily, I think, be completely negative, but there are other ways to think about it that, you know, might mean something new.
0: Yeah. I mean, going back to the lack of full time appointment conversation, right? The initial response from someone, a a clergy member in a local church would be, what? You're not going to guarantee me a full time job anymore? And that could be very threatening. Behind that new legislation, if you will, are almost a thousand people wrestling with what is next for the church. And to know that behind it is is a good intention or an intention that is true and to to see what that is all about,
1: yeah. So I mean, how do you? Coming away from this episode, how do you think differently? How are you going to think differently about the book of discipline if you're going to read it differently?
0: I think for one, I think I'm actually going to read it. <laughs> no, just joking. No, you know, it was always, I think before this conversation, I saw the book of discipline as a book of law, as a book of code. But now I think I'm going to see it as a living document, a document that reflects that the United Methodist Church is a church that is growing, uh, a church that is being moved by the Holy Spirit, and is a church that is continually challenged by the calling that God has placed in it. So, you know, I actually used this book recently in a, in a small group to answer some theological questions. The question came up about original sin, and the question came up about Trinity. Like, where in the Bible does it say Trinity? Where in the Bible does it say original sin? And I could point to scripture that I know inspired those doctrines, but there's no language original sin in the Bible, right? But if you look in the Book of Discipline, I could say, well, theologically, our denomination, this is our stance on original sin. And, you know, we could wrestle with it. Maybe you could agree with it or disagree with it, but it's there. And I think it's a great conversational starter as well. And it's a great place to go back and say, oh, this is what we believe theologically as United Methodists. Uh, it's been, It's been a helpful document, helpful book.
1: I, I'm going to think of the Book of Discipline, I guess, as a document that is necessary for local church members to have access to and to understand that this Book of Discipline, despite its title, is not a law book completely. It's not a complete law book. It's 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 a book where we can use it to guide the way that the church is in the world. Uh, we can use this book to, not determine, but we can use this book to converse and discuss and come to understanding about how we are to be as a church in the world. Uh, something that we can use to hopefully maybe help to reclaim uh, the identity that United Methodists had um, 50, 60, 70 years ago, which is a church that's, that's always out in the world, always doing something socially uh, and, and almost looked at as, as kind of crazy Uh, A church that necessarily acts in the world, Uh, a church that necessarily has a stake in what is happening politically and socially in the United States and globally.